Good afternoon. Happy Sabbath, everybody. Thanks. Try one more time. Good afternoon. Happy Sabbath. Ah, that feels a lot better. Now, Jinhao was talking about all the different sporting events that have been going on in Melbourne, and uh, I was able to take advantage of uh, some of those sport or one of those sporting events. As the Asia Cup is taking place right now, uh, we found out that Korea was in the quarterfinals, and uh, James sends me a text message, hey, like the game is on Thursday, this is on, I think, um, Tuesday. And he goes, hey, or, or this was on the weekend, and he said, hey, like, you know, if you go online and you buy a ticket, there's a good chance that you can get in. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, it's a cheap ticket. Korea is here. Asia finals, like, once every four years. Like, why not? Let's do it. And so I wait till Tuesday, Tuesday morning, 10 a.m., like, the tickets go on sale. And so at 10 o'clock, I log on to the Internet, and the website is kind of confusing. And so I wait for about, it takes me four minutes to figure it out, and as soon as I click on the buy ticket, it's sold out. <laughs> like in five minutes it was like gone and I thought there is no way that there are this many Koreans in Melbourne like there's no way and um, anyway I ended up going on Gumtree and I uh, found three tickets and was very happy and we went and uh, it was a really really good game um, but yeah it's definitely nice to be here in Melbourne and uh, yeah just just starting to benefit from some of the uh, the good things about being here. I got my Victorian license this week, so I was pretty happy about that. I was like, woo! But now I get points, which is bad, because I can lose my license. So I don't know how happy I am about that. But really, I'm a safe driver. Anyway, this, uh, this afternoon, the title for the uh, message is uh, The Greatest Need in the Church, You Think I'm Going to Say Revival. As we started this uh, series on the book of Acts and church history, uh, at least through the first century. Um, this great revival that takes place in Acts chapter 2 is quite significant. And so today we're going to be looking at the story and uh, we're going to be looking at what it takes to experience revival as we look at the revival that took place in Acts chapter 2. And so I wanted to ask you uh, in opening, what do you think of when you think of revival? Uh, I think of things like spiritual awakening, People coming to this realization, well, I really need God in my life, and I kind of want to get life together and give God my best. Uh, I think of growth in numbers in terms of people just packing out a room to come hear about the gospel. I think of uh, a sense that uh, God is very present in, in, in one's life, and one comes to that realization and says, wow, God is real. And uh, it brings about the sense of uh, uh, just uh, fervor, I guess that's the word that I'm looking for. There's this book that I was reading through. It's called uh, Center Church. Um, it's actually American. It's, a, it's an American book, and I, uh, I was pretty pretty proud of myself about that. But anyway, um, there's this book called Center Church, and uh, on page 54, and I've kind of I've summarized the words here. It says, uh, there, there's this gentleman by the name of Richard Loveless, and he's a student of the history of revivals, and he wanted to know what makes revivals work, and this is his observation. As he looked through the different revivals that took place in history, uh, he writes, Christians know that the love of God is the foundation of correct moral behavior. But in normal living, most Christians and people in general find security in what they do or by what they accomplish. And so the great need of revival uh, is present because it communicates there is security and acceptance in Christ. And it kind of reverses this so that all their actions, their service, their obedience comes from this place of security and love for God. And that's why there's this great need of revival. Now, while revival is the answer, it is also a problem. 
And the problem is that revivals can become different forms of this very thing. It's like, wow, now I'm reading my Bible regularly, and I'm great. And it's the exact same thing. And so sometimes it's easy to value the golden egg and forget about the goose. And so this afternoon, I wanted to walk through Acts chapter 2 and really focus on who God is and what God did here at the beginning of the church. And so if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Acts chapter 2, we're going to be walking through this together. Uh, the first passage I'll put up there for you, but if you have your phones or your Bibles, you can flip to Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Here is the end result of what takes place in Acts chapter 2. It says, um, and the context of this is Peter has just preached a sermon, the Holy Spirit has been poured down, and there are some supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit. People start speaking in different languages, and uh, people from all over the world are in Jerusalem for this uh, specific feast day, and it says they hear the sermon, and it says, so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Can you imagine having 3,000 people rock up into your church one day after, um, I don't know, those 3,000 people not being there? That would be quite impressive. I'm trying to imagine what 50 people in this room would look like added to what we already have, and it would be pretty much packed. So 3,000, I'm sure they were thinking, wow, and at the same time, who is going to feed all these people? Anyway, it's a good problem to have, I suppose. Notice they uh, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, so they're spending time with each other regularly, and day after day after day, um, the people that heard the message spent time together, and there's this bonding and there's this community that takes place. It also says that there are many wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. And as you read through um, the subsequent chapters of the book of Acts, there are stories of uh, Peter kind of walking through the streets of Jerusalem, and his very shadow kind of heals people. And so as he's walking through the streets, uh, the people rush, and they kind of put all the sick people along, uh, along the line, and they're thinking, where's the son? Okay, he's going to be right here. Put him here. And people were getting miraculously healed by this man's shadow. And so... Um, Quite impressive uh, manifestations of the power of God. Another result of what takes place from this revival is that it says that all those who believed uh, had all things in common. In other words, they shared everything. Uh, they sold their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. And I, I don't know if anybody here wants to start this system here in our church um, our, our current family need is a home, so if anybody has an extra house, I've got a mountain bike, and I'm happy to trade, and anyway. Um, you can imagine the, the disciples at that time, it was quite amazing because people actually cared for the physical needs of those that were around them, and there's, this, um, there's just a lot of activity that takes place. And it says that God added to their number every single day. And you can imagine being in a type of church where something happens every single day of every single week. And um, I'm kind of used to being in a setting where uh, maybe three or four days out of the week max you have something that's going on. And that's pretty, that can be quite tiring. But can you imagine every single day spending time with um, the, the, the fellow, pe uh, fellow believers and uh, God starts bringing people every single day? It's quite significant what happens here. So my question is this. How does this actually take place? And there are, are uh, two things that I want to talk about this afternoon. And the first ingredient uh, for, as I read through Acts chapter 2, the first ingredient that I see that takes place here is that there is a revelation of truth that was connected to the previous messages that God had already given. And so when those revelations of truth were confirmed, 
the faith of the, of the disciples increased. So they saw truth and they were like, we've read this before in the Bible. It's actually taking place right now, I believe. And that's basically what took place in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, if you can go to Acts chapter 2 and go to verse 22. So Acts chapter 2, we're going to read in verse 22. And Peter is basically preaching this message to um, the hearers uh, that were present. In Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 22, here's the actual content of his message. He says, Men, is, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to, get, uh, put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So, here, Peter says, and I guess I could have summarized it here. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is resurrected. Death cannot hold this man. And everybody else who had previously heard about Jesus, they would have known Jesus was crucified, and they would have just thought he was a normal man. The government and the um, religious political powers that, uh, at the time just got rid of him because his presence, his existence was inconvenient. And so uh, when Peter preaches, he says, Guys, Jesus is not a normal man. He's the Son of God, and He's risen from the dead. And when people hear that, they see all of the miracles that are taking place, and they realize this is true. Otherwise, what other explanation do we have for all the miracles? And the fact that Jesus was resurrected communicated to them, death cannot conquer Jesus, and nothing can conquer Jesus. And the message that God is trying to communicate is, even the sins of our lives cannot conquer um, cannot conquer Jesus, and they cannot conquer us either. And so God is trying to communicate this message. So that's the first bit of truth. Here's the second bit of truth that Peter communicates. Acts chapter 2, verses 33, or 36 to 38, and I'll just summarize this. In those three verses, Peter basically says, the man that you crucified, Jesus, offers forgiveness to you. Now picture this. Jinha mentioned in Acts chapter 1 last week that for 40 days, Jesus is on earth and he's kind of sharing with the disciples different truths about the kingdom. Ten days later, Pentecost hits. So 50 days prior to this very day, there were some people in the audience that had murdered Jesus, murdered this, uh, this uh, in their eyes, teacher. And so Peter looks at them and says, I have already proven to you that Jesus is divine. He's the son of God. You murdered him. And can you imagine being in that audience, listening to a preacher thinking, I killed that person, but he's alive now. What do I do now? And there's almost a sense of fear. And what Peter, Peter does is he leaves the fact out in the open. He says, you murderers. And the Bible says that they're pricked in their hearts and they ask, what do we do now? And he basically says, repent. And what he's saying is, God offers forgiveness for you. Accept that forgiveness. Now, can you imagine what kind of relief would come to somebody who hears the fact that I've just been a part, I've been an accomplice in a crime, and the person who I've done this wrong towards forgives me. Like, how potent and powerful that would be for someone who would come to that realization. Here's a third truth that Peter preaches. It's found in verse 33. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. 
And he says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out which you now see and hear. Basically, he says, Jesus is on the right hand of the throne of God, or excuse me, he's on the right hand of God sitting on the throne. Now, there's a very interesting parallel. Just later on, if you have time, and you're reading through Acts chapter 2, you see that this prophecy is being fulfilled. Jesus is king. He's sitting on the throne. If you flick to the back of your Bible in Revelation chapter 5, there's this story in Revelation of a lamb who is slain, who rises again, and goes up to the throne of God, takes a scroll, and he sits down on the throne. And in Revelation chapter 5, basically you see this coronation scene. You see this picture of Jesus becoming king of the universe. And so, Peter preaches to all the people that are there, Jesus is resurrected, Jesus offers you forgiveness, and Jesus is the king of the universe. And as they hear that, they come to this realization, wow, this man was so much more than we had ever expected. And then, the revival comes. So, part of what takes place in Acts chapter 2 is there is this revelation of truth that brings about renewal. There's this man named J. Andrew Dearman, and I want to read a quote to you. He says, Theology, or teaching, or truth, does matter, not because God insists on a rigid intellectual system, but because unless we understand who God is, we will be in basic error about everything else that is ultimately important. The church, nor its teachings, and I've added that part, will not save anyone, but it is a means to a goal not the end itself. Understood correctly, it is a means to know God and be rightly related to Him. So he's just saying, if you properly understand the teachings of the Bible, if you understand the truth, it gives you a clear picture of who Jesus is. I often give this illustration in um, different Bible studies that I give, but I'm curious, how many of you have gone to see the optometrist? Alright, and they put that machine in front of you and it's got like a hundred different lenses and they, they ask you, is A better or is B better? And they ask you to flip one or two, one or two. And I have pretty bad memory and even though it's like, anyway, my short-term memory is shocking. I'm like, can you do that one more time? And uh, anyway, theology is kind of like different lenses that are placed in front of that, that machine. And as you flip the lens, theology or truth or teaching is supposed to help you see God clearer. Those teachings are not God himself but it lets you see God clear, and it allows you to experience God in a very profound way. And so, Peter preaches truth. And so, um, through history, whenever people have come to a better understanding of God, it had results. And uh, I I know this is very true even for myself. There was about a three- or four-month period where I really, really felt I don't understand Uh, how salvation works. I don't understand what forgiveness even means. And I really felt um, troubled because uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced those moments where you just feel bitterness and you just have a hard time forgiving somebody. And I was at the time where, you know, I was supposed to learn how to be a pastor and teach people about forgiveness. And I found myself having a hard time forgiving. And I thought, you know, I don't think I understand this as, as, as well as I should. And so for about three and a half to four months, I just opened the book of Romans because I thought, oh, Romans is such a famous book about salvation and forgiveness. And for that period of time, I just read the first half of that book over and over and over again until I felt like I understood it. And I don't know if you've ever read 10 pages for three months straight, but um, it can be quite redundant. 
And, uh, and yet, at the end of that four-month period, I really felt like I had a better understanding of who God was and really felt forgiveness for myself and found, you know, like, I think I understand how this works. And in that um, moment of being able to forgive those who had really brought hurt and pain in my own life, I felt this tremendous sense of peace and, um, yeah, I really felt this appreciation for God. And I think that's, that's really what Peter was trying to do as he presented uh, the truths uh, to those that were present. So, um, objective truth is one element of the revival that took place in Acts chapter 2. Here's the second thing, personal experience. If you're in Acts chapter 2, I'd like you to look at the first four verses of the passage. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it says that everyone was together praying, and the Holy Spirit descended upon them um, like a flame of fire, and it says, divided tongues of fire sat upon each of the individual's heads. And so it's like the Holy Spirit gives an individual experience to individual people. And what happens next is those people have the ability to speak different languages. So each individual, one person spoke Korean, the next person spoke Australian, the next person spoke American. I'm kidding. And uh, anyway, different people had different language skills, right? And so... Um, the Holy Spirit gives this individual experience. And so the powerful thing that takes place, uh, the, the thing that I think is powerful that takes place in the first two chapters is that there are many disciples worshiping one God and um, they basically, there's a degree of unity, I would add even uniformity in the way that they think, um, yet they're able to preserve this sense of diversity. Like God gives a different language to each individual person. And if you look throughout the New Testament, the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to different people. And that is cause for division. Um, and basically, God's uh, encouragement to us is even through the diversity of gifts, we need to be able to find unity. And so in Acts chapter 2, we see a diversity of giftedness that goes to these each individuals. And what I want to present today is that not only did God give a, diver a diversity of gifts, but he gave a diversity of understanding of who he was to the different people. In other words, as the disciples interacted with other people from other countries, from other languages, from other backgrounds, their understanding of God would change, if that makes sense. And so not only did the Holy Spirit give a diversity of uh, giftedness, the Holy Spirit gave a diversity of thought, and of teaching and of a revelation of himself. Let me give an example. In the Bible, or, yeah, let me give an example of this. Okay, there's this um, guy in India who's explaining the story of the lost sheep um, to some of the kids that are around him. And uh, in the Bible, there's a story of a lost sheep, uh, and it represents God's people. This shepherd has many sheep. One sheep goes off into the wilderness, and the shepherd goes chasing after him, and uh, he has to take his rod and he's bringing the sheep back, but the sheep is kind of stubborn and a little dumb. And he takes the rod and he breaks the sheep's leg. He slings the sheep over his back and he carries the sheep back home. And the lesson is, um, we are like sheep sometimes. Sometimes we're stubborn. We don't want to come back to God. And in his mercy, there's discipline. And in that discipline, there's this willingness to come back. And um, that's kind of the parable. Now, in India, in this part, particular part of India, there are no sheep. 
um, they only have elephants. And so the guy's doing his best to explain the story. Okay, there's this animal owner. He owns all these elephants. He owns a herd of elephants. And one day the elephant ran off. And, and then the, the, the uh, animal owner thought, oh, no, I have to go rescue the elephant. And he goes back and he chases the elephant. And he gets the story where the, the animal owner takes the rod and breaks the leg of the elephant. And he realizes, how is he going to get the elephant over his shoulders? Like, there's just no way. And so... Obviously, there is a challenge of culture, of language, of background whenever you're explaining certain stories in the Bible and even certain teachings about God. So, here's the biblical example. In the Bible, there are different teachings that God has given to his people. In Genesis chapter 17, oh, sorry, let me just fast forward through that. In Genesis chapter 17, there's a man named Abraham. And God had a very special relationship with Abraham. And he says, Abraham... I'm going to do things in your life that I normally wouldn't do in anyone else's life. Like, I want a very special relationship with you. And here are some of the um, parameters of that relationship. Um, that word covenant is just an old word for agreement, uh, bind, uh, yeah, uh, an agreement, a binding um, promise, if you will. So God says, this is my covenant. Basically, he says, any male who is eight days, eight days old among you will be circumcised. And um, you're to remove the foreskin of the flesh of the child. And basically, he says, my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now, I have a question. How long is everlasting? Forever, right? Sorry, I'm asking these very simple questions. But it helps me know we're on the same page. So... God says this binding relationship is supposed to take place forever. In other words, there is no end to it. Can we agree on that? Okay, so here's the parameters of that relationship. And then, if that weren't serious enough, God adds, whoever is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off. In other words, kick that person out from your community. They cannot live in your home. You cannot have fellowship with that person. They're basically out, right? And so... If you're a baby who is eight days old, then you're not going to remember a whole lot after, after the procedure. And so it's okay for someone who's born into that system. But what about an adult who wants to join the family of Abraham? Or what about some male who marries his daughter or something like that? Can, can you imagine what it's like for that individual being fully grown, fully aware of what's going on, and they realize, I want to join you, but do I really want to join you? I don't know. And so... Uh, this rule is kind of put in place. Now, can you imagine, uh, here are some Hebrews throughout the generations, throughout history, how they would respond to this passage. They take it very seriously, very, very seriously. And even today, um, they still practice circumcision. Now, when Micah was eight days old, we had to make a decision. Are we going to circumcise Micah or not? And basically, the medical practices in America are quite different from Australia. In Australia, it's kind of like, more people would say, don't do it. And in America, um, people would say, no, you need to do it. Um, and so there's just different medical practices. And so Jin Ha and I are like, okay, well, let's try and find a, um, let's try and find somebody who can perform this procedure. And we couldn't find anybody. I were like, out of all the doctors in Australia, why is this so difficult? Finally, we came across, um, a Jewish obstetrician. And he was like, oh yeah, I perform, I perform the procedure. And because it's, it's such a, Unique procedure, it doesn't fall under health insurance or anything like that. You gotta pay out of pocket and we're like, ah oh, man. But, um, we have a medical professional in the family and she was like, you better circumcise him. So we're like, okay. <laughs> and, um, 
Anyway, so the Jewish doctor out of every other doctor here in Melbourne performs a procedure because he's used to doing it because it's still done today, and that's, that's my point. Um, it's a very, very serious rule or promise. Now, here's what takes place. If you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. What takes place, and there isn't a whole lot of explanation in the book of Acts. You have to read books like Galatians uh, to understand Paul's mindset. But Paul is going around and he is now preaching the gospel to non-Jewish people. He is preaching the gospel to fully grown adult males. And he's saying, come hear about the gospel. And it's the gospel, it's very similar to the ones that the Jews believe in. And in order, back in those days, in order for a non-Jewish person to become a Jew, they would have to go through this procedure. And now Paul is preaching to all these non-Jewish people. And he's thinking, these people are not going to want to join our church. Can you imagine if we, if we held this as, as a, um, if we told people you have to do this to join our church, like how many people would join us? So Paul is saying, there are obvious limitations to this. And he basically says, you don't need to do this anymore. Like you do not need to get circumcised to join uh, the New Testament church. And so in chapter 15, we read through the first couple verses. It says, And certain men came down from Judea, they were Jews, and taught their brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? And they're just simply going off Genesis chapter 17. They're like, this makes sense. If you want to be saved, you got to, you know, do the deed. And so Paul then, here's his response. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. And so they said, listen, they had a massive argument. They say, you go to Jerusalem, to the headquarters of the church, and you need to talk about what you're doing. And so if you're in chapter 15, you can skim verses 6 all the way to the end of the chapter, and I will just summarize what goes on. So, Paul agrees. He takes a group of people, they go to Jerusalem, and he says, listen, there are non-Jewish people, obviously they have a problem with this, um, this teaching, um, and I believe that God is allowing these people to receive the Holy Spirit, He's allowing them to be saved, even if they don't go through circumcision. And so, we think, I think, that this should not be a part of our church doctrine so in verse 6 peter stands up and he basically backs he backs up paul he says this is correct um and in peter's role he's uh, in in peter's um words men and brethren you know that a good while ago god chose among us that by the mouth of gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe and he basically says we need to let these people hear the gospel in a very uh, let's make the transition easier for people Verses 19 to 22, there's a man named James. He is the current leader of the church. He stands up and he says, you know what? This is a good idea. Let's change the rules for the Gentiles. And here are the rules. Verses 19 to 22, it says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues of every Sabbath. So he says, listen, here are the new rules. Let's take out that circumcision thing. And this is the leader of the church. You read at the very end, the brethren agree, okay, let's change the rules. Now, 
Here's the challenge. God clearly, and this is not somebody writing this down. This is God audibly speaking to Abraham. And he says, this is my covenant. It will, it needs to stick with you forever. There's no way around it. And yet, God's people gather together and it's almost like a direct contradiction to what's being said. And this is a massive challenge, a massive theological challenge. And yet, the result is, if you read verse 30 and 31, the brethren send out this letter and it says, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the, the, uh, they delivered the letter. So they are now talking to these non-Jewish people. And it says, when they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. They're like, oh, we're so encouraged by the Lord. And the end result is the church grows after that. And so what happens is there is this interaction with different people from different cultures, from different backgrounds, and it actually changes some of the very teachings, the core teachings of Judaism. And it's this powerful thing that takes place. And so um, here's my question. My question is, well, how does this actually take place. I, I remember um, there was a Jewish scholar that came to the Victoria Conference to share about um, outreach to the, to the Hebrew people. And he was saying, um, and, and this guy was Jewish, he grew up in a Jewish family and decided to become a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And so he is sharing with everybody, listen, these are some of the challenges that I had to go through when I was transitioning. And he shares about different teachings of Judaism and how Adventism kind of um, blends in with Judaism. And I asked him about this passage. I was like, what do you think of this? Because this is kind of, to someone who is a Jew, who is an expert of the law, this is a direct contradiction. This is what he says to me. He goes, if I were in the council listening to Paul's presentation, I wouldn't be convinced. If I were in the council listening to Paul's presentation, I wouldn't be convinced. And then he simply says, there's some things that the Holy Spirit does that are beyond us. And those things happen, and we say, God, you are allowed to do that because it's your word anyway. But he's saying, as a human, as somebody who understands the previous word of God, I understand that there are challenges and difficulties. I just thought that was like the most interesting thing ever. And then the next question I asked them is, well, then where's the boundary? Where do you draw the boundary? Because then you can just change anything you want and say, oh, well, you know, we need to reach out to everybody, right? So, like, let's just change everything. And I asked them, where do you, where do you draw the line? And he said, listen, you need to pray about that. And, and I did. I did. And this is, um, this is the text that came to my mind. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your, uh, excuse me, with all your soul that you may live. And so the purpose of circumcision is supposed to be this kindergarten lesson book, horrible kindergarten lesson book for an adult, I guess, about um, removing stubbornness, removing stubbornness. And the idea of circumcision is there is this stubbornness around our hearts that causes us not to love God with all of our heart, our soul, and then uh, the New Testament says, with all of our mind. And if you look at other ver- verses that has to do with circumcision, it uses that word stubbornness uh, specifically. And so, here's Paul's argument. He's saying, leaders of the Jerusalem Council, there are people who are not stubborn. They are open to the gospel. They love God with all their heart, their soul, with their minds. They want to live. Now, circumcision is supposed to be kind of like training wheels so that you can learn how to ride your bike. And Paul is saying, they know how to ride the bike. Do they need the training wheel? And the leaders gather together and they realize, you know what? 
there is consistency with what Paul is saying to what this is trying to teach, let's just let them take off the training wheels. So there's a difference between something is right one time and then it's changed to something is wrong another time. There's a degree of consistency throughout Scripture, and Paul just says, listen, do we really need just the outward working of you know, this? And you read through Paul's writings, and he just hammers circumcision. And so my point is there is objective truth, and God gives subjective uh, experiences to each and every one of his followers. And the way that you know that the Holy Spirit is in a place is when you know how to blend those two things. When you know, God, you've revealed truth to me that really shows me something new about you. And at the same time, when God's people are able to interact with one another and realize, you may believe something that's slightly different from me, I wonder if there's something that I can learn from you. I wonder if there's something that I can learn from you. And in that experience, revival takes place because people realize we know how to get along with each other even if we disagree with one another. And this takes place in the book of Acts. And I believe that's one of the reasons why the church grew because they were able to come to this uh, very uh, complex balance. So the first, that was my first point. Here's the second and last point. The reason why there was revival in Acts chapter 2 is because the followers of God had an awareness of the working of God. Peter's preaching was, Jesus is on the throne, the Holy Spirit is here, miracles are taking place, we have prayed together, we are united, and God is working. And the people hear it, they see it, and something takes place. In my home church, uh, my, my home church is called the Seattle Central uh, Korean Seventh-day Adventist Church. And um, Korean, uh, the, the, this particular ethnic ministry is kind of unique in that um, you've got a handful of uh, wealthy people and they have this massive building with a gym attached to it. It's like, it's church and then basketball court, which you're like, what the? And so it's this massive uh, property. And um, there's this cultural language barrier between um, my dad's generation and my generation. Because my Korean is uh, very limited. And then their services are in Korean. And so what happens is they have another second and third building on the property. And it's kind of like, this is where the... Korean-speaking people worship. The middle building is where uh, the English-speaking people worship. And there were about uh, about 60, 60 to 70 people there um, at the time. And this is back in um, 2005. And so uh, there are about 60 to 70 people. Uh, a third of them are young professionals, and the other two-thirds are kids from uh, both sides, whether it's Korean-speaking or English-speaking. And what they decided is, look, how, how can we bring about this sense of uh, that God is doing something in this church. And they decided, look, we are laboring here in Seattle. We're trying to reach out to our friends, which is great, but maybe we can do, maybe we can be, um, a benefit to those that are overseas and less fortunate. So let's try and do something for those that are over, that are living far away from us. And maybe this will bring about a sense of like, man, we, we experience God in a profound way. And so what they decided is every third offering of the, of the month, they would gather the funds together and send it to a particular ministry that is taking care of an overseas need. And uh, they chose this group called ASAP. I'm curious, has, have, has anyone ever heard of ASAP? All right, in Berrien Springs, Michigan, there's like the central hub of Adventism. And in this hub, there are missionary organizations. One of them is called Adventist Frontier Missions, which is AFM. Another one is called ASAP. It's uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, or excuse me, um, Adventist Southeast Asia uh, Projects. 
And uh, basically, ASAP is the one that they chose, and they said, look, every third offering, we're going to send our two to $300 to you, and you can relieve some suffering that's, that's overseas. And um, so for the first month, they sent the money, and uh, they bought rice for people in Cambodia. And so they thought, oh, well, that was kind of nice. And the pastor who was there at the time was uh, listening to a David Gates sermon. Has everyone ever heard of it? Has anyone ever heard of David Gates? He's like this guy of faith who just moves forward. He's kind of like, God, I believe you're going to provide. And then God provides. And I mean, like, he wants to buy a television station so that he can present the gospel in South America. And then a million dollars comes. And so, like, his sermons are quite... um, yeah, they're just kind of inspiring in the sense of, wow, God can do anything. And so here's this church in Seattle, and they think, oh, look, you know, it'd be great if we could do something like that. Let's set a goal, raise, pray for money, and then send it to relieve um, more suffering. And so they gather together, and they pray, and the pastor sends out an email. Everyone pray every single day. We're going to set the next goal for $1,000 um, after a month, $1,000. And instead of just relieving the uh, physical needs of the people, let's, let's help them spiritually, and so let's buy Bibles. And to get a Bible to Cambodia costs about $20 for one Bible, um, for them. And so they're like, how many Bibles can we, can we send? And I'm like, alright, well, let's, let's raise $1,000. So the time came up, and, um, on that weekend, they raised $4,382, which provided for 876 Bibles. And it wasn't like the money just came from that particular congregation. People heard about what was going on. Hey, they're actually praying. They're actually trying to do something. I want to send my money there too. And so on the day of, they received a $1,500 check from a visitor uh, who came to church, rocked up into church, listened to what was going on and thought, you know, I've got $1,500 that I can spare. Here's, here's the money for you. Uh, another visitor uh, gave a $500 check and basically... Um, they had almost four and a half thousand dollars, and they uh, sent these Bibles. So, they the leaders gathered together, like, "Wow, this is kind of exciting. What should we do next?" And they thought, "Well, let's ask for more. Let's see what else happens." And so they thought, "Okay, well, let's raise the bar and let's try to pray for four thousand five hundred dollars, and then we can help build two churches in Cambodia." And so they decide one month we're going to pray for four thousand five hundred dollars. So they pray, 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 pray. The third Sabbath rolls around. And they count all the money in the offering plate, $6,684. And so they gather together and they, they ask themselves, hey, so what, what should we do now? Should we just, you know, that was pretty cool. And they thought, well, let's pray for more. Let's see what happens. And this, so they did this every single month for about a year, from December to December. And I'll just summarize what took place in the year because otherwise I have to share that story like um, 10 more times. So basically... Um, in that time, they raised a total in one year, they raised a total of $255,000. $255,000. One church of 60 people. And, um, there are some individuals who are really wealthy in that church, but $255,000 didn't come from them. Um, and it was basically different people had heard about different things that were happening and they said, we want to give. They provided 10, during that, during that year, the money went towards 10 lay Bible workers working in Vietnam. Uh, for the year. They helped support a radio ministry. They bought 500 radios that went out to individuals in Vietnam. And what they do is they have the radio station and they take these handheld radios and you can crank them. And basically it's, you know, you've seen those radios where you crank and that's the, that's the power. It doesn't run on battery or solar. It's just, you crank it. Well, it's a rechargeable battery. So they distributed the 500 uh, radios. They um, sponsored 80 church planters in Southeast Asia to continue the work. 
not to mention, and I've already mentioned the church that plants that took place in the, uh, the Bibles that were given out. And so, um, they also sponsored students that were wanting to become evangelists. They wanted to become ministers. And so that money went towards sponsoring students to learn how to do ministry. And while they were learning, they actually went and did evangelism themselves during that time. And so, um, yeah, this church kind of reflected on this one year and realized, you know, all we did was gather together, pray and ask God, God, do something. And as they saw God, God moving, it inspired them to do more. You know, I was reflecting about uh, the Melbourne City Adventist Church uh, here at 500 Collins Street, and I was reflected on um, how we got here. And I don't know if we've shared the stories with you before, but um, we've had visitors come from Germany, and it's like they don't live here in Melbourne. So they were in Germany. Somebody told them, hey, there's a church that's in the city of Melbourne. You should go check it out. It's pretty neat, the things that they're doing. And they're like, oh, really? Okay. And so they come here on a on a uh, education grant, and they're uh, doctorate students. And basically, while they're here in Melbourne, they Google the website, and they realize, oh, that's where it is. That's the one. And then they came and visit. And so when we saw them at the front door, we're like, hi, where are you from? They're like, oh, we're from Germany. We heard about your church. <laughs> like, I don't know anybody in Germany. Like, how did you hear about us? Like, oh, like, just word is getting around. I was like, I can't believe that's happening. Last weekend, there was a young girl from uh, Perth who came. I say young girl, a young lady that came from Perth. And uh, she's here visiting. And uh, basically, she says, oh, yeah, I, I heard about your church in Perth. And I'm like... Like, how do you how do you hear about our church from Perth? Like that doesn't that doesn't even make sense. And what what I'm saying is that there are people outside of this building that are aware that the gospel is being preached here. You know, about a year ago, we um, or excuse me, maybe a year and three months ago, we didn't have a place to worship. And the question was, where where do we find a venue? And um, there are cheap venues for about $500 per weekend. And so if you rent a building for one one space for one weekend, it's $500. And you just kind of think, our budget is zero right now. So, I mean, I, I've, I've got money, but, I mean, like, how long is that going to last? You calculate $500 every single weekend for a year, and basically it, it almost, uh, I think I calculated out to be, like, uh, I want to say twenty grand or something like that. Close to $20,000. And so every year, this place eats up $20,000, right? And it's like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna afford this? I meet with, um, a gentleman, and we've, we've introduced him to you before. He owns this floor. He has lunch with me one time, and he says, Roy, are you looking for, um, well, I was reading through uh, some paperwork that you sent through. I see you need a church. Do you, like, I've got some office space. Do you want to see it? And we're at, um, we're at just this, uh, Chinese restaurant down the street. And I, I just thought, oh, it's a small office space, but it's rude if I say, no, I don't want to see it, right? And I was like, okay, I just thought of some cubicles. And he takes me into 500 Collins Street. We go to the 10th floor, and he just, first he walked into the boardroom over there, and then he was just showing me the different cubicle areas. And he was like, look, I've got this, I've got this boardroom. I don't know if this would fit you. And initially, have you guys been into the boardroom? Okay, if you have a chance, there's a room right here. Open the door. It's like room for about 20, 25 people. And I thought, oh, this is perfect for us. You know, there are four projectors in that room, and there's a whiteboard. And I was like, this is this is great. He didn't even walk into this room yet. And so he's like, come follow me. We walk into this room. I was like, no way. You know, there's like you can fit like 60 people in here, and then the walls break down. And I thought, this is this is incredible. And I asked him, hey, Derek, do you own the whole floor? And he's like, yeah, like I lease the whole floor out. Like this is my company. And I like I'm just 
I can't believe it. And of course, in my mind, I'm asking, how much, right? <laughs> how much is this going to cost me? And so I asked him, hey, so how much do you want for rent? And he goes, oh, look, don't worry about it. You guys come here. You worship. Like, I've been praying, God, like, you've given me, you've put me in a place where I can give. You've put me, you've put me in a place where I have a company. How can I use this for you? And he says, you know, Roy, you guys are an answer to prayer. And we're walking outside of the street, and uh, he goes, you know, there are pastors like you who are looking for resources and asking God, God, um, like, we want to do something for you. Meanwhile, there are people like me, and we're just waiting for people like you to step forward so that we can support you. And I'm just, I'm floored by that. Like, I, I just, I don't, I, I'm kind of, like, speechless. He says, Roy, you use, you use the... Um, you use a facility as long as you need, and then when you guys get stable, then like we can we can renegotiate something. But you guys just you use the space for what you need to use it for. Um, as as we shared this story with our leaders, uh, one of them went on Google Maps and they're like, "Where's 500 Collins Street?" And uh, I don't know if you've ever walked along this side of the building, but uh, our building is on uh, Collins Street and Church Lane. You know how there are lanes that split up Collins Street? We're on Collins Street and Church Lane. And I thought, no way. Like, out of all places in, in, um, I almost called this place Israel. (laughs) Out of all the places in Australia, why would you name a lane Church Lane? And I was like, this is, no way. And, like, there are just moments where you realize God provides something. and, And it really solidified in my mind, I think there's a reason why we're here. Like I think there's a there's something that God wants our church to do, and as I as I read about Acts chapter two, I just think, look, um, it may not be converting thousands of people. It may be, but it may not be. But definitely, the main purpose of Acts chapter two is God wanted to reveal Himself to those that were around the disciples, and that's exactly what they did. And I believe completely and wholeheartedly that God has us here for that very reason. And there isn't a reason why that couldn't happen. All the ingredients that um, were present at Acts chapter 2, we have access to. There isn't a thing that the disciples had that we don't have. You know, there's that passage that Jinha read um, last week about um, the disciples learning from the feet of Jesus for 40 days. And what we're wanting to do this year is um, we're wanting to do a 40-day challenge. It's a 40-day fast. And what we're, what we're um, presenting is to say, we're inviting you to join us um, for 40 days to fast from media, not from food. Um, we, we've done the 40-day fast before, and people ask us, you're not eating for 40 days? As, what we're saying is, a lot of times it's easy to get distracted, whether it's from um, uh, TV, media, news, whatever have you. And uh, it's easy to just get distracted. And for 40 days, what we're saying is, we're taking a step back from media, we're fasting from it. Um, I'm not going to watch uh, football. Actually, football, the, the American football season is going to be over. But um, <laughs> that wasn't um, planned originally. But anyway, um, it, it's basically saying I'm stepping back for the things that are going to distract me. And I'm using the time that I would normally spend in media with my family, with my friends, uh, in God's word. And that in and of itself is not the revival, but it's to prepare for revival. And so um, Jinha is going to share a message next week, and she's actually going to give a challenge where she's going to offer an appeal. So I'm going to give you forewarning. Um, if you want to be challenged, come and uh, respond to the appeal. If you don't want to be challenged, uh, just come anyway. Um, 
And Jinha's going to explain a little bit more about what exactly the 40-day media fast is all about. And, um, yeah, we invite you to join us to seek God together, and uh, may we be able to experience um, the very thing that happened at Pentecost. May God bless you.